it is another blessed opportunity we've each been given on this Sunday morning to assemble and to gather in the name of, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, to offer worship through Him unto the great Heavenly Father. Certainly, we're thankful not only for the membership who are here today, but our visitors as well. Delighted for each and every one who's come our way, and it's our trust, our earnest desire that all of us as we worship, it might be a worship that's done in truth and spirit, pleasing unto God. And of course, you and I will be the better, certainly, for it. A moment ago, it was mentioned that uh, Brother Cale did so in light of the personal evangelism seminar coming up this coming Friday. So may I ask, we each keep that on our calendar. Uh, 7 o'clock Friday evening, Brother Rob Whitaker will be with us. And of course, not only two sessions Friday night, one at 7 and one at 8, but also on Saturday morning at 9, 10, and 11. So please, if at all you can, he's coming to share with us some wisdom, some words of practicality to help us share the gospel in a one-on-one way with those who are our friends, our, our neighbors, our relatives, our acquaintances. So please keep that in mind and come and be with us, if at all you can, this coming Friday and Saturday. As Cale also mentioned, we'll have some refreshments, some, some snacks starting at 6.30 on Friday and also available on Saturday morning as well. Four seconds. I think some made the hope that the lesson would have that length, but I suppose I'll disappoint you on that one. The opening slide of this particular lesson is one that I hope will motivate us to consider what I had in mind with the choice of that title. It is true that the word second can be used to refer to an amount of time, namely the 60th part of a minute, but it's also true that we often use that word in relation to something that follows what's first. And I suppose it's a rather tempting thing, isn't it, to cast almost exclusive emphasis on what's first. But were you aware of the fact the Bible actually lifts very crucially and very highly several things that are second? Let's look at four of them today. And I believe as you'll discover with me as we discuss and look at those passages together, we'll be reminded how critical these second things are. The second birth. A moment ago, it was read in our hearing from the third chapter of the gospel according to John. And on that occasion, a rather impressive gentleman named Nicodemus came to our Savior by night, and an amazing conversation developed. Beginning in verse number 3 of John chapter number 3, Jesus answered the particulars of that discussion. You'll notice at the top of the slide... Nicodemus made the initial observation. We know that thou art come from God, for no man can do these miracles, these signs that thou doest, except God be with him. Immediately you'll notice that Nicodemus had a notable respect for the Master. He had already, by evidence and observation, concluded that he must have been from God. And yet... As the Lord perused his heart and looked carefully into those things, Jesus began with this statement. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The Lord immediately made reference to a second birth. He's got to be born again. And in fact, that statement's going to appear a bit later in the actual text itself. But immediately might I ask you to note these things. It's absolutely true, isn't it, that the Word of God lays an emphasis upon the first physical birth. And all of us remember the joy that surrounded 
perhaps the birth of our children. Sometimes we appreciate some travail and pain go with that. But just as Jesus Himself identified in John 16, 21, all of that travail is gone as soon as the mother holds that baby. And she's overwhelmed with joy and overwhelmed with excitement. But you'll notice that Nicodemus was puzzled by this. For in the next verse he asked, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And there's our word, second. And Nicodemus asked a good question, didn't he? Lord, you mean to tell me that one needs to give thought to entering the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus, of course, replied rather quickly like this. In verse 5, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus quickly identified for Nicodemus, I'm not talking about a physical birth again. I'm having reference, he said, to a rebirth, a spiritual birth. Could I invite you to notice in chapter 1 verse 12 of this same gospel account, rather immediately on that occasion it was said that to them who believe on the Lord, they will have the power by virtue of the blood of Christ because they're not born of things physical. They're born of God. These verses alone are highlighting in our heart then a critical importance to a second birth. As you and I develop that further, what is it the Lord specifically said? In verse number 5, "...except a man be born of water and a spirit." This birth to which the Lord refers is a birth that involves water and spirit. I would ask you to consider some of these passages with me. In Ephesians 5, 26, isn't it true? A great blessing was pronounced upon those who were born the water. Not only that, isn't it fascinating to reflect on that statement in the book of 2 Peter, or rather 1 Peter 1, or chapter 3, verses 18 and following, wherein a description was given about the nature of the flood of Noah's day, comparing it to the baptism of your day and mine. Those waters of the flood, you see, they buoyed the, war, the ark upward, saving those eight souls that were aboard it. And in that same way, verse 21 says, The like figure wherein to even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You'll notice their baptism, the likeness and the consideration of water involved in it, is something that is said to save us. Highlighting again a critical importance attached to the text before us. Look at perhaps one final passage in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 and following. Here is an overwhelming scene of an Ethiopian eunuch, a nobleman, who had traveled such a far distance in the attribute and desire to worship. The word was given. Philip needed to join himself to the chariot, and as the conversation pursued, it was the eunuch that said, Here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? It's true that is, inasmuch as Philip had preached to him Jesus, that included the topic of baptism, scriptural baptism in water. You'll notice there's something rather dramatic then about the Lord's emphasis. Did you note the language with me in verse 3? If one has a desire to see the kingdom of God, it will require 
being born again. In verse 5, if one has a desire to enter into the kingdom of God, it will require absolutely and without compromise being born again of water and spirit. You can see then why this second birth is so critical for all of us want to go to heaven. All of us want to be a part of that blessed kingdom of the Master, and yet it will require being born of water and spirit. It will require a rebirth. No wonder then, as you and I close the slide, might we note it like this? For that statement also said that this will not only involve water, it will involve the Spirit. What's the Spirit's role in this? Thankfully, the New Testament provides us with so many passages that can be helpful. What about John 16, 8? There as Jesus on the night before He was crucified, He made note of that revealing power of the Spirit, how that the Comforter was coming. And as the Comforter would reveal those critical matters of information, that the apostles would be led into all truth by virtue of it. Well, what did that truth include? Ephesians 5.26 and 1 Peter 1.22. You and I notice the leading of the Spirit is such that the Spirit provided us with this. How would we know what to do to be saved apart from the revelation of the Word and the nature of what the Spirit has told us? We surely can be thankful for what the Spirit has done. Perhaps least among that might be this. In 2 Peter 1 verses 20 and 21 how strongly the work of the Spirit is listed like this. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit developed and gave us this. Jesus told Nicodemus, You must be born again. And if you expect to see the kingdom, it will require it. May we say today that still is a needful message for us. If we want to be pleasing to God, we must be born again. Now notice, that's not another physical birth emanating from a mother's womb. It's born of water in the Spirit whereby we allow ourselves to be plunged beneath the waters of baptism in the leading forcefulness of the Spirit. And in so doing, we rise to walk a new creature in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17 and that beautiful description of Romans 6, verse 3. That isn't the only second thing in the Bible, though, because this one seems to naturally demand the next one. The second law of pardon. Suppose an individual has become a Christian, has been born again. And what if that person stumbles and falls and proceeds to engage in things that are sinful? Then what? Thankfully, we have this which is before us now. Let's begin that slide like this. In Revelation 2, verse number 10, the Word of God gives this admonition to each of us. Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give thee a crown of life. And that phrase, unto death, highlights even in the forcefulness as death hovers over you. No matter what the persecution or affliction, we're admonished to be faithful to ever be those dutiful stewards of the things of Christ. Because of that, note the next thought. How often we're encouraged. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, for example, Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, 
For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, you and I as Christians are urged to be unmovable, not able to be drawn and pulled aside to various and sundry other pursuits, but our chief pursuit is this. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Matthew 6.33 It is true, though, in light of all those things, we do understand we can make bad choices. We could begin to pursue a course in life which would be a sinful one. And we may forfeit that salvation we once had so lovingly embraced. The Bible does teach that, doesn't it? Though it ought not ever happen, you and I can choose to do that. In Galatians 5 verse 4, Paul told those brethren in Galatia, You have fallen from grace if you turn back to the law of Moses. So here they were, having accepted the Christ, and if they then reverted back to the law of Moses, seeking in those patterns and in those ways the pursuits of God. He says, you will have fallen from grace if you do that. Or maybe that strong passage in 2 Peter 2, verses 20 and following. There, didn't Peter highlight it like this? He spoke about those who had escaped the pollutions of this world. Now, you and I know our world does not offer those things by its own nature that are pleasing to God. Because Jesus came and told us, Don't you love the world? Because all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not of the Father, but it is of the world. As you and I add that to our appreciation, notice where it leads us. What if a person then pursues that worldly way of life? Is there any hope for him or her? Though once saved, he isn't now. Thankfully, on this slide, what do we see? We have an exhibit A, an example in Acts chapter 8 of someone who was in this circumstance. When Philip came into the regions of Samaria preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, there were many who responded and were baptized, both men and women, Acts 8 verse 12. But we quickly noticed there was one in the group named Simon. He was a sorcerer, a kind of magician. He had bewitched people and he had in fact deceived people. He wanted to buy the capability of passing on the power of the Holy Spirit. And he offered it to Peter. I'd like to buy it. Would you sell it to me? Peter rather quickly directed some attention to that man and said, It can't be bought by you. You are in the gall of iniquity and in the bond of, 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 of that which is apart from God. In fact, Peter said, you've got to repent. So here was a man who once again had been saved. He had just been baptized not many verses earlier. He had enjoyed the rebirth. But there was now a problem in that he had faltered and fallen away. Did Peter say it was hopeless? Did Peter say there was not any opportunity for him to be right again? And thankfully, he did not say that. Thankfully, that man said, will you pray for me? It is true, then, isn't it, that here was a gentleman who himself as a Christian had fallen away, but he came back. Our God loves us and Jesus loves us. And even if you and I as Christians stumble and we bring disgrace upon the church in the name of Christ... He lovingly wants us to come to our senses just like the prodigal son did in Luke 15, 24 and to come back and rush lovingly back to his side. You'll notice on that slide with me, 
that it is highlighted like this. That second law of pardon, how thankful we can be for it because it was never extended to angels. Isn't that remarkable? Angels, of course, they too, in as much as they had regulations and things that they were supposed to uphold and to keep, but yet the New Testament tells us some of them did not keep their first habitation. They sinned, 2 Peter 2 verse 4. Have you ever thought Jesus didn't die for the angels? They don't have a second law of pardon. They were in heaven at one time, but in those that sinned, it says they were cast down and they have no opportunity to be saved. Not any, Hebrews 2.16. And yet you and I as Christians, when we stumble, He does offer to us that second law of pardon. May you and I then take to heart that beautiful appreciation and understand that even when we falter and stumble, we can confess those errors, 1 John 1 verses 8 and 9. We can repent of them and we can in fact beseech brethren to pray on our behalf. And God's promised to forgive it. James 5, verse 16. That's two things that, though second, how vital they have been. What about a third one? What other second thing is worthy of our attention based on the frequency with which it occurs in the New Testament? May I suggest the second coming? That obviously refers to the second coming of our Savior. It is true, right, that He came the first time. And how often the Old Testament had pointed forward to the fact that He would come. In Isaiah 53, it was told much about the nature of the kind of death He even would die. And of course, as we turn the page from Malachi to Matthew, we find Jesus did come. He was born of the Virgin Mary there in Bethlehem. But our study today is the second coming. Because didn't Jesus Himself say there was going to be one? May I direct your attention to texts like John 14. Again, the night before He was crucified, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I'm coming again, He said. You and I perhaps have often reflected on that scene in Acts chapter 1 when those apostles, 11 of them, were gathered around Jesus and He ascends up into the clouds, no longer to be seen with a physical eye. But yet on that very occasion in Acts 1 verse 11, those angelic visitors that were present, they said, Why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus whom you have seen go into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen Him go. He's coming back. There will be a second coming. Those points on that slide ask you and I to reflect on its usage in Hebrews 9.28. In the very last verse of that chapter in Hebrews, the inspired writer points this truth out. So then those of us as you and I look expectantly for His second coming, it says, He shall appear the second time without sin unto salvation. There's our word again, the second time. He came once. He bequeathed that gospel to those apostles and they dutifully preached it. And the book of Acts is a record of their efforts. And you and I today, 2,000 years later, 
still enjoy the goodness of that message known as the gospel. But that gospel also teaches us that He is coming again. He will close the affairs of time. And when He does, look at some of the things at the bottom of that slide, reminding us about that second coming. Even the details of it, the Lord at least in some measure delivered to us. In Matthew 24, verses 36 and following, you might recall an impressive conversation that took place between Jesus and some of the apostles. I'll begin like this. You may recall that the Lord had exited the city of Jerusalem and as He had made comments about the nature of the temple and the greatness of it, He specifically had shocked them by saying, I'm telling you, not one stone will be left on another that shall not be thrown down. When they arrived on the Mount of Olives, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they came to Jesus in a private way and said, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the age? They specifically asked, When are you coming back? May all of us take careful observation. The Lord answered those questions in order. In Matthew 24, beginning in verse 4, He answered the first question. Namely, what about the, these things? This destruction of the temple you just referenced. Jesus later on very clearly would tell them it's going to happen in this generation. Matthew 24, verse 34. But then He transitioned to answering their second question. His coming. You'll notice He said it like this, No man knows the day or the hour. No human has been told when that event's going to occur. As you and I contemplate that, we now know it's been roughly 2,000 years, and we still don't know anymore. Because in Mark 13, 32, Jesus Himself said, not only did the angels not know, but in the flesh He didn't even know. Only the Father. You and I perhaps wonder with expectation relative to the second coming when our Savior is going to appear and every eye will see Him, Revelation 1, verses 5-7, through 7, even those that pierced Him, it'll not be a secretive event at all. I know there have been those through the ages that have taught some secretive, rapturous event, but the New Testament doesn't teach it. When the Lord appears, every eye shall see Him. Everybody's going to know it. Everyone will be aware of what's taking place. The second coming is a magnificent New Testament event. As you close that slide with me, the Lord quickly taught this lesson relative. Though it's true we do not know the hour, He quickly pointed out the urgency is to always be ready and to be watchful and to live with wisdom. Isn't it true? It's in that context the Lord taught the parable we call the parable of the ten virgins. Five of them were wise, five of them were foolish. And that which made the wise ones wise was not only did they have oil for the present, they brought enough with them to last even until the coming of the bridegroom. You and I must be alert, vigilant, watchful, always living wisely. Because isn't it true? We can't hope to die in the Lord if we don't live in the Lord. Three things then have occupied our thinking about the word second. How about a fourth one? This one 
perhaps is a dramatic way to close our lesson today. Dying, the second death. You may notice I kind of bookend the lesson that way. We started with a birth and talked about a second birth, but what about a second death? You and I think about dying once, and we're aware. Maybe we've seen it in family members and great-grandparents and grandparents, neighbors and friends. What is a second death, I wonder? You may notice a moment ago that in our hearing was read a text from Revelation because the Bible mentions a second death. Let's revisit that passage and look at how it's presented and use that as a powerful teaching element and a teaching tool for you and for me as well. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, which was the text earlier, we'll read that one, then turn over a chapter and read another one. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. In the next chapter, Revelation 21, verse 8, But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. As you can see, the second death is then a very powerful topic in the Bible. Let's proceed like this. You and I know that our life in this flesh, if the Lord delays His coming, is going to end in physical death. We understand that. Our common experience teaches it, and so too does the Word of God. As it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. Hebrews 9 verse 27. That nature of death, in fact, was hearkened even from the days of Adam. In Genesis 3.19, didn't God tell Adam on that occasion that while you're here in the flesh, this earth is going to bring forth its thorns and its thistles, and by the sweat of your brow shall you eat bread till you return to the dust, for out of it were you taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And so as we contemplate that matter of death, we, we understand it well. But it does lead us to note this. The Bible even reminds us that we, we aren't promised or guaranteed long life in the flesh. Oh, it's true in the Bible. Some lived a long, long time like Methuselah, 969 years old when he died. Genesis chapter 5 tells us. But there are others who died much younger. I listed Amon for you. At the tender age of 24, he died according to the books of Kings and Chronicles. You and I perhaps have known some who died much younger than that. It's fair to say, though, that as we talk about the second death, it rather quickly brings us to this. In that text of Hebrews 9.27, again, didn't it say, "...as it is appointed unto men once to die, after this the judgment?" The Bible uses a beautiful figurative description for events attached to that judgment. It occurs after physical death, mind you. But on the occasion of that judgment, we're going to stand in the august presence of the great God of heaven and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we shall give an answer for the deeds done in the body. Whether we have lived righteously or not, whether we've been obedient or not, it is in this context that this description of the second death occurs. I think you probably noted it already, but while I have your attention there in Revelation 20, let, let me do so again. 
We read verse 14, but did you note verse number 11? And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works." This is a picturesque, vivid, dramatic presentation of judgment. All nations are going to be gathered on this occasion, according to Jesus in Matthew 25, 32. And here, the books are going to be opened, and the dead and the, all, all the dead, both small and great, shall be present. And then He says they'll be judged out of those things written in the books. My life will be an open presentation that day, just as yours will. I'm going to be judged. It'll be a moment of reckoning, a reflection on was I dutiful as a servant of God, and of course the same for you. In a thunderous way, Paul wrote it like this in 2 Thessalonians 1, To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 and following. When the Lord returns then and sits in judgment, what about my obedience and yours? You now see what this second death means. To those on that day who will be judged unfaithful, disobedient, and unrighteous, their fate is called the second death. Did you notice? They'll be cast into a place with brimstone and fire. It'll be the place where the idolaters, the murderers, the liars, the whoremongers, all of those we read in Revelation 21.8. Doesn't it highlight in your life and mine a needful emphasis on avoiding the second death? We understand we've got to die once here in the physical flesh, but we do not want to experience the second death. As you and I close that slide, you notice then that description leads me to conclude the lesson and to bookend it like this. You and I have been given by the great God of heaven a dramatic choice. We can either be born twice and die once, or we can be born once and die twice. May we all choose. May we choose with wisdom so that we will appreciate the need to be born twice, just like the Lord told Nicodemus. Not only from the mother's womb, but to be born of water and the Spirit, John 3 verse 5. And if we'll do that and live faithful till death, the second death will not be ours. You see, the second death is not given. It's not reserved for those who are the faithful of God. Those who will be judged righteously on that day. Where do you and I stand at this moment? Have you been born twice? If not, why not today? Why not today? The baptismal waters behind me are ready. If you believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, if you're prepared to repent of your sins and to confess the name of Christ, we'd be happy to immerse you today and Jesus will add you to His church. Your name will be etched into the book of life and if you live faithfully till death, the second death will not be yours. But it's also true that if you've been born once and only once, 
remedy that shortcoming in your life. Go ahead and enjoy that second one today and all of the blessings that go with it, and thus avoid the second death. Our study today has been of four seconds. I hope that we've each been motivated to appreciate these second things are so critical. A hymn of encouragement has been selected, and this opportune time is before us. If there's anyone in the audience that might wish to make a public response to the gospel's call of invitation, we'd be delighted to assist and to help, and to do so at once while together we stand and while we sing. <laughs>